0: Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, it's been two weeks. Welcome back. We had a little hiatus over the Memorial Day weekend. Happy to be back. Always so much going on. It's like it's hard to even know where to begin. There's so much, so much has happened. So much happens in like one week. Never mind two. But I'm not even going to attempt to recap all of the crazy that's happened in two weeks. But I will start off by previewing this episode. I have a great guest this week, Sam Vinograd. She is a national security expert. She is a former National Security Council staffer um, under the Obama administration. She was um, an assistant to the National Security Advisor, Tom Donilon. She was also a Treasury Department official under Bush. And she also is a senior advisor to the Biden Institute. And um, she's uh, really super smart, super experienced, very opinionated, and tells it straight. So excited to talk to her about Trump's visit to Britain and to the D Day ceremonies in France. we you know, the 75th anniversary of D Day is coming up this week on June 6th. Um, uh, God only knows what Trump's going to do or how he's going to behave at this very solemn ceremony. But uh, Sam has um, a special connection to D-Day and she talks about what that is coming up in our interview. We also talk about Jared Kushner, um, this disastrous interview he had with Axios over the weekend. Um, Axios has a show now on HBO. Jonathan Swan was the interviewer and I'm telling you, this was a train wreck. I don't know whose idea it was to put Jared Kushner out there, but it was awful. It really demonstrated what a lightweight he is. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So, um, so it's a good episode. So stay tuned for Sam Vinograd. She'll be up in a little bit. Uh, what else? Oh, so I guest hosted the view this week, which is always exciting. I love it when ABC calls me and I get to fly up to New York and hang out with the ladies of the view at the table. The last two times, this is the second time I've guest hosted in the last couple of weeks. So um, Abby Huntsman is out on maternity leave for the rest of the summer and Anna Navarro is their normal fill-in host, but I'm kind of the backup to the backup. So if both joy and megan are out or if both megan and whoopi are out and they decide they want to go five they'll call me or they'll go four, like they did this week which was the first time they've done for all women of color i think um so it was me whoopi anna navarro and sunny hostin great show we had a good time and uh It was, uh, it it's just always fun. I I really enjoyed doing the view. It's just a change of pace for me. It's different than, than the political arguments on, on CNN. It's just a a lot more relaxed for me. Some people might think that that's not the case because you see, there's, there's a lot of arguing on the view too, but it's just different. It's a different environment. So I enjoy it. It's a, it's, it's a change of pace for me. So shout out to the ladies at the view. Um, I, I adore Whoopi Goldberg. A lot of people um, don't really understand her, I think. I think she's very misunderstood. And I even had a different impression of who I thought she was until I had the opportunity to work with her. And I started to really pay attention to her. And I've got to tell you, Whoopi Goldberg, not only is she a legend, um, she's hilarious. She's down to earth. She has a heart of gold. One of the nicest, nicest people that I have met in this business. So shout out to Whoopi, and she loves my husband, by the way, loves him. She loves him. They um, had an encounter a couple years ago while my husband was working, and um, I can't go into the details, but it was pretty funny, and she remembered. So when my husband came, we weren't married at the time, but when he came with me the first time I ever did The View, back in 2017, I kind of pimped him out because I wanted to use him to break the ice and it worked. <laughs> it worked. And she remembered him and remembered the incident and it was, it was, it was great. It had to do with her smoking and, and a cigarette. And she she quit smoking after it. Actually, she told us that we didn't know, but um, yeah, so Whoopi's cool. And she also has a new, um, she also has a new clothing line out. Uh, it's called Dub G By Whoopi Goldberg. And if you are looking for like comfortable chic clothes, her line is the way to go. So, um, I have to pick out one of my, one of my pieces so I can model her, her line, but she always wears them. And I know other people who, who have her stuff and they love it. So I'm all about comfort, especially when I'm flying. So anyway, so that's that, that was the view. That was a good time. So it was just us four. Um, the Mueller report. So most of you who listen to this podcast also probably follow me on Twitter. And you know that I'm very active on Twitter. So I pretty much in real time when major things are going on, I'm tweeting up a storm. And when the Mueller, when not the Mueller report, when Mueller himself, the Robert Mueller spoke last week, I was like, Wow. He he he's going to talk today. Okay. It was a total shock. I mean I mean we knew that his investigation powers and all of that his mandate was coming to an end once the report was out, but there were things to button up. But well, we just didn't know when he was going to talk. And we also didn't know is he going to testify, what's going to happen. So last week, he decided last Wednesday that he was finally going to say something. And it was short and sweet, but it was still impactful. He basically, how did I feel about it? Well, at first I was like, this is underwhelming, but then I had to remind myself that Robert Mueller was never going to say anything explosive. He's, he's a straight shooter by the book, you know, Marine, very focused. He doesn't do politics. He doesn't like that. So he wasn't going to come out there and say like, you know, Donald Trump committed all these crimes and. We wanted to indict him and he probably should be impeached. So Congress, you do you do your job because this guy is the worst. <laughs> but he did kind of say that in his own way. It's frustrating for people who aren't lawyers to listen to lawyerly, legalese, very um, narrowly defined terms and things like that. When you're like, just come out and say it, just spit it out. Uh, which is kind of how I felt a little bit about Mueller's um, nine-minute speech, his, re- well, speech remarks, his, his his press conference, where I was like, why? he goes right up to the edge. Because unfortunately, most people, they don't like to critically think you have to spoon-feed them information. You know, if you, this deductive reasoning thing, but you know, well, here, if it's this and this, then it must be that. You can't lay it out like that if you want the masses to understand it. It's unfortunate, but most people in, in groups are intellectually lazy and they want information spoon fed to them. And that's, and and that's also why Donald Trump easily gets away with bullshitting so much and lying so much and telling people all these lies because people will take them in a lot of times because they're not going to do their research. They're not going to listen to multiple news sources. They're just going to listen to one specific channel or just him, you know? So, but the key parts about Mueller and what he said basically, he reiterated that everything is in the report, and he's right. But he's assuming people have read the report or plan on reading it. 97% of the American people will never read one word of the Mueller report. Look, I get it. Not everybody has time to read 448 pages of anything. Never mind a report that most people think doesn't have anything to do with their day-to-day lives. And I don't have time for that. You've got kids, you got to work, you got this and that, you know, I get it. That's why they have people like us who whose job it is to read the reports and we can, we can synthesize things and report back. Got to give you the summaries. But, um, you know, Mueller basically was like, if we could clear him, we would have, um, but we didn't cause we couldn't. And, he also reiterated the fact that the Department of Justice memo, the guidance, the OLC, Office of Legal Counsel guidance, that's been on the books for decades now, is pretty much what prevented them from put giving a specific recommendation for indictment, because it says you can't indict a sitting president. Now, Bill Barr, our Attorney General, this guy is the worst. In the last couple of weeks, he has really been emboldened by Trump. He's opened up another investigation into the investigators. Uh, we talked about that in the last episode with Ellie Honig. Um, now we find out that he's that he's been given all of this power to look at intelligence agency information about the origin of the of the of the um, counterintelligence investigation into Trump. You know what the Russians were doing and why the FBI decided to open the investigation. We already know the answers to this. This is ridiculous and could be potentially dangerous. And Sam Vinograd, actually, we talk about this a little bit, why this is problematic, um, what this does to the intelligence community and to human assets who work with our intelligence community to bring us information about things and why this could hurt those relationships. So, so Mueller, he really does not want to testify. He said he hopes this is the last time that anybody hears from him. Uh, He'll testify if he's subpoenaed, but he just doesn't want to seem overly political. And it's tough. And he's old school and we are in a different environment. Everything is political, no matter how much he's tried so hard to be above the political fray. But the political gravity, the forces of politics with someone as uncouth as Donald Trump and the people who are enabling him. It's really hard to go the the way that Mueller has gone and not lose the messaging, not lose the narrative. And I think that, that they were starting to. And the Democrats can't seem to get their acts together. They, they're so scared of moving forward with an impeachment inquiry. They're afraid of what the political consequences are going to be. And the caucus, the Democrats are getting more and more restless. The rank and file is Nancy Pelosi and the leadership. They're like, Whoa, slowly roll. We don't want to do this impeachment thing yet. But the rank and file are like, have you read the Mueller report? We need to start impeachment. And I agree. I agree. I know that you have to be very careful with impeachment. You have to make sure the American people understand why you're doing it. You have to, they have to, you have to explain the merits of of the impeachment inquiry. That's why you start off with an inquiry. Those are just basically more intense hearings. And if they start an official impeachment inquiry, then that triggers more power to compel people to testify. Because as of right now, as we speak, we have multiple Trump former Trump administration officials that, as a result of the Mueller report, Democrat committees want to hear from. They want to hear from Don McGahn, right, the White House counsel, since he was in the center of most of the obstruction of justice charges, uh, the incidents, you know, Who, Well, Mueller himself, he needs to come up and explain some things. I mean, I appreciate the the nine minutes that he spoke to us, but he still has some questions to answer. So he's going to have to get over it. I know that they're working on trying to figure out a a deal to get him to testify. Maybe he's going to do it behind closed doors, which I still don't think is enough. The American people need to hear from him. Um, But if he's subpoenaed, he'll he'll testify. He's not going to be defiant of the law, obviously. But... Um, he, but he, uh, he's going to have to be compelled to do it. So I, I, I don't know. He claims that if he testifies, he's not going to deviate from what's already in the, in the report. Um, so we'll see, but you, right now we've got Don McGahn that's, uh, been instructed by the white house not to comply with subpoenas. Now it's Hope Hicks and one of McGahn's, um, former assistants, they're being told by the White House, no, do not comply with the subpoena. Bill Barr has already basically given the big FU to the, the committee, the oversight committees. So these things are going to be legislated, I mean, uh, litigated in court. They, they are. Now, Hope Hicks has turned over some documents from the campaign, but nothing from her time as the communications director in the White House. Well, of course not. God only knows what they have, what what, what they saw, what was going on. It was the wild, wild West in the West Wing during the first year and a half of this administration. I mean, it still kind of is, but it was really bad in the beginning because they didn't know what the hell they were doing. No clue. No clue. So that battle continues, but this president must be held accountable if this, if what's going on here, just like Justin Amash, representative Justin Amash, the lone Republican who has come out and said and made a case for impeachment, bravo, Justin Amash. I don't agree with some of his libertarian stuff. He's always kind of been out, out there a little bit with the libertarian perspective. Um, but I, he's a hundred percent right on, on immigration. I mean, on, on impeachment, he's a hundred percent Correct. And he is saying what a lot of Republicans actually feel or say in private, but are too cowardly to say in public. And they, and they've been like eerily silent. All this stuff, the crazy shit that Trump has still been doing, tweeting and, uh, you know, talking about treason and coups and all this nonsense. No, Republicans don't say a word. And they can't really argue Justin Amash's points either. And he makes the point that he's not worried about impeachment being used too often. He argues that he worries about it not being used enough to the point where impeachment no longer has the teeth that it used to have, the effectiveness. In my opinion, if, if what Donald Trump has been doing isn't impeachable, then what the hell is? Sometimes what the right thing to do in a historical perspective for the health of the republic has gone got to be more important than the politics of the day. They just have to be. So we're at a crossroads with this, but this is going to be ongoing, of course. Um it's far from over. It's kind of just the beginning. Um hopefully the judicial process it doesn't drag out because we have an election in a year and a half, so we kind of I think they, they can expedite it. They can expedite these hearings and things, and they've already started to do that. A couple judges have already admonished the Trump administration on some of the weak arguments that they've been putting forth to prevent documentation and things from being produced to Congress. They have the right in an oversight capacity. So stay tuned. Stay tuned to that. Jared Kushner. Let me talk a little bit about this, his, his interview with Axios before I bring in Sam. So I have done episodes about my disdain and contempt for the fact that Jared and Ivanka are in the White House. I did an episode a couple months ago outlining Jared Kushner's role concerning Saudi Arabia around the Jamal Khashoggi murder, some of the suspicious interactions he's had the fact that he has no business having a security clearance how many like how many people were like uh, this guy can't have a security clearance and it was recommended against giving him a security clearance because he had to he didn't, he wasn't forthcoming in his in his forms when he filled them out he had to amend them dozens of times cuz he forgot about a bunch of foreign meetings he had and god knows what else what he was trying to hide because his he comes from a real estate family also and they have some shady shit going on with his family too including this property on 5th Avenue that he's been trying to offload for years 666 5th Avenue what <laughs> coincidence that is horrible what a horrible address why why wouldn't they just change that but anyway it's been a debacle So he's been searching for all kinds of rich governments and he went to the Qataris, he went to the Chinese and God knows whether he went to some Russians, who knows, because it's a couple billion dollars to try to get money to refinance this property because it's bleeding money. It was a terrible investment, but he's supposed to be some boy wonder also. Trump puts him in charge of every major project, including Middle East peace. Please, he didn't even run his family's company well. And this is the guy that you think is going to solve all the world's problems with zero experience or background to qualify him in any of these things, please. So anyway, so Kushner decides every once in a while when he, he comes out and he gives an interview, he, he gives me the creeps. Isn't he creepy? He's just creepy, very effeminate and creepy. I don't, I, I don't get him Ugh. anyway. So he does this interview with Axios and He's asked several questions. They talk about a lot of stuff. I suggest you go and watch it. It's on HBO, but there's also, you can just Google it. There's clips all over the place. But the one of the the, the clip that we've been seeing the, the most of was when Jonathan Swan asked him about Trump being a racist. And Jared Kushner had this, this prepared response, but I don't think he was ready for the follow-up question. So he basically said, well, Um, I've known him, you know, I know him and I've never seen him do anything that was uh, racist or bigoted and something to that effect. And then, which we all know is BS. Well, what's he going to say? It's his father-in-law, not only his boss, but his father-in-law. But then Jonathan Swan follows up and asks him, what about birtherism? Right. Donald Trump made a crusade out of trying to say that, that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country it was nuts in 2011 and it was, it was rooted in racism. And so Jonathan Swan tried to get <laughs> Jared Kushner to admit, well, what about birtherism? And he just kind of said, he kept saying, I, well, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't involved in that. That's a yes or no question. Was the birtherism thing racist or not? But he was back into a corner and he kept repeating himself. I wasn't involved in that. Well, I wasn't involved in that. That was a terrible response. Terrible. So we already know, come on, we know that Donald Trump is is a bigot. The list is long. From the Central Park Five to the housing discrimination lawsuits of the 70s where they wouldn't rent to black people, to black dealers in Atlantic City suing him for workplace discrimination. The Sons of Bitches comments about NFL players, however you feel about the kneeling issue for the national anthem. I don't agree with that, but I also don't think they're sons of bitches. Come on. To calling African countries shithole countries. I mean, come on. (laughs) To David Duke. Remember he didn't condemn David Duke right away. Who? David Duke. Who's that? Never heard of him. We all know that's BS. Charlottesville. Come on. So he also talked about some other things and this idea that he has this middle east peace plan he it's dead on arrival they're not even including palestinians in the conversation you're never going to reach a two state solution or any kind of peace agreement unless the palestinians are at the table he's approaching it like it's a, like it's a real estate deal that's not it this is a this is one of the most difficult, diplomatically difficult issues in the world and has been for a millennia so I mean, come on, Jared Kushner. <sighs> you gotta just watch it. It's embarrassing. It it really, really is embarrassing. And but the but the part that stood out to me, besides the his ridiculous answer to is Trump is birtherism racism or not, was when he was asked about the Trump Tower meeting, the infamous Trump Tower meeting where he, him, and Paul Manafort, Don Jr., they thought that they were going to meet with Russians that had dirt on Hillary Clinton. And then it turned out to be nothing, right? It was, oh, well, at first they lied and said it was about Russian adoptions. Well, that fell apart quickly. Now we know with the Mueller report and everything else, we know more detail about it. He was asked if that happened again, would he contact the FBI? And he basically said, no. What? I mean, the FBI director just testified in front of Congress about this very issue because the Russians are going to try to meddle in our election again and God knows who else. And so what is it? A free for all now? Foreign governments can come in and, and offer opposition research to, uh, for political opponents and that's just okie dokie? No. That's not okay. Not Okay. Well, Giuliani tried to seem like, well, so what if they did? Well, well who cares? What? No, that's not okay. So Jared Kushner got very defensive and said, "Well, I was, you know, busy. I got hundreds of emails a day, and I we had just come from, I'm, you know, a real estate business person, and we didn't really have experience in this, making all these excuses." Okay, fine. You didn't know what you were doing the first time around, but now you've been around long enough. You've been warned by the intelligence community, including the FBI director about these foreign influences, the answer should have been a swift, absolutely we would contact the FBI because this is not an acceptable way of conducting campaigns. The end. Wouldn't that be the patriotic American thing to do? So they're just, that's nuts. Nuts. This Jared Kushner is a menace and always has been. This is why we shouldn't have, we, we, this is why nepotism laws exist. This is why people, you know, you don't hire your family to do the jobs of experts because he's not an expert in anything. He's completely unqualified for this. And I, I talk about this with Sam Vinegrad, too. She has some, she has her own um, opinions about this and very strong ones at that. So that's why I like having her on. And, um, also, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit with her about D-Day. I just want to make sure that I um, commemorate that because it really is. It's the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which is the end of World War II. And, um, you know, I, I think the younger you are, sometimes that seems really far away in history and people forget about how monumental those days were. And, you when we say the greatest generation that really was the greatest generation my grandfather is a world war ii vet. he was not in normandy but he was stationed in italy at the time and i, I actually he's passed away i've mentioned this before he passed away at 90 in 2016 mm-hmm. and i found some um, papers that he had when he was in the military and it's uh with like the front pages with pictures of Hitler and V D day and just like other historical points during world war two. It's pretty cool. I might have to take some pictures and post them. I think I'll do that. But D day, you know, um, most people my age probably watch saving private Ryan, which they say is one of the most historically accurate depictions of what happened that day with a little Hollywood flair. But, um, they really tried, I think it was a Spielberg movie, right? Um, they really tried to be historically accurate because they took the the diaries and the accounts of people who were there. And it was based on on some real-life people. But I just think that we need to know, I mean, tens of thousands of people, there were casualties. I mean, the Germans from, from June of um, 2000, I mean, I'm sorry, June 1944 to August of 1944, well, um, it, it four hundred and twenty five thousand casualties between all of the Allied forces, German forces. They suffered huge losses. I mean, just on D Day alone, which was June sixth, nineteen forty four, which is when when our when the Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy in France, and there were five beaches. Most famous, uh, Omaha Beach. You had Utah gold Juno and sword Beach um, Omaha being the the most difficult and this was where why was this important well if they were able to um, over overtake the German defenses then the Allied forces would have free reign to go into Europe to liberate Europe from Nazis and and end the war so um I think it was something like 10,000 casualties that day with 40 I think I, mean, I have the number here 4,413 were killed 2,499 of them were American soldiers There were 150,000 land and sea troops and General Eisenhower who went on to be president led those those forces just really historically very interesting and you know the united states fought alongside troops from britain, canada, poland, denmark, belgium, norway, australia. these were our allies. They they their blood bled with ours and they did so to fight for freedom. and i just worry about those alliances being frayed with someone like trump. you know we've had this world order now for 75 years. And the NATO alliances, the NATO alliance was formed to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again in Europe. It was to, to make sure that the Soviet threat didn't um, go outside of their borders and try to invade the way Nazism did and fascism. And just those the symbolism on those beaches, it, it really just, it just symbolizes universal hope and, and for freedom and peace and reconciliation. Germany's one one of our closest allies, despite what happened there and the Marshall Plan and rebuilding Europe after that. So pay attention to history, go watch Saving Private Ryan at least or something. And remember that the greatest generation, because this year will probably be the last year that anybody from any World War II vets that were there can attend. I think there's only 35 going this year because they're, you know, they're old, they're dying off. I just found out also that there's a World War II museum in New Orleans, of all places. Uh, I happen to be listening to Tom Brokaw, and he was really involved in this, in getting it um, funded, and and he was just really involved in it, and apparently, I've never been, but apparently it's like this really cool museum that has great exhibits and actual artifacts from that, from that time and the battles, and yeah, so... And they have a big thing. Oh, and apparently also, um, France submitted the Normandy beaches, the landing beaches for, um, UNESCO historical world heritage, world heritage sites. So they're a candidate for it. They haven't been designated yet, but they absolutely should be. They absolutely should be. So as of January, 2018, they're being considered for UNESCO world heritage sites. Um, So that's my little history lesson to commemorate D-Day. Also this week is the anniversary of Ronald Reagan dying. I know not everyone who listens to this podcast loves Ronald Reagan the way I do, but he died on June 5th, 2004, I believe. Wow, 15 years already. So busy week this week. Anyway, well, without further ado, uh, let me bring in my guest, Sam Vinograd, and we'll talk a little bit more about our wonderful president over there on on a rampage in Europe, and well, more specifically in uh, in Britain. He's going to go to Normandy. Can he? Will, will he stay? Keep it together? Will he stay uh, uh, like a mature adult, or is he going to say something crazy while he's over there? Who knows? I mean, he already offended half of Britain with his tweets before he landed there insulting Meghan markle and oh god and and putting his thumb on the scale of the the parliamentary elections coming up for the new prime minister i mean the prime minister elections in britain this guy is just a walking disaster but we're going to talk a little bit more about that with sam vinaigrad coming up next I'm happy to... Back honestly speaking with Tara. We took a little bit of a hiatus, but we're back this week. And I'm excited to have Sam Vinograd on with me. She's a colleague of mine at CNN, and I've been waiting to get her on. I've already had her work wife, Asha Rangapa, on <laughs> with me uh, a couple times, and I've said we've got to get Sam involved. She's super sharp. She's got a, an amazing background and experience. Uh, Sam is a former senior advisor to the National Security Advisor under Obama. So she's former National Security Council staff. She was also a a Treasury Department official under President Bush. She's currently a CNN National Security Analyst, and she is a senior advisor for the Biden Institute uh, in Pennsylvania. So, Sam, welcome. I'm so excited to have your expertise and take on what's going on on Honestly Speaking this week thank you so much for having me I'm glad you've had my work wife
1: on I'm thrilled to be here
0: <laughs> I, uh, we were talking off air and I said that we all have to get together you me Asha Josh Campbell um, you know we, we need to have some drinks count and me in match. count me in <laughs> that's how we get by it's with wine and exactly. exactly um, next time everybody's in DC we gotta make it happen and then we can have the debate over uh, anyone who follows me and Asha knows that there was a huge debate over whether your team um, tiramisu or not because Asha doesn't like tiramisu, and I do. I'm with Asha. I can't I'm with believe Asha. Of course, you are. It's your work wife. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great debate. It, that got like 200,000 Twitter impressions. I just don't I get tiramisu. It. It's just like, it's not really anything. Like, go one <gasps> way or the other. No. Right? The oh chocolate, the coffee, just pick one. You, you know what? I've determined. I think people who don't like tiramisu haven't had really good homemade tiramisu because it can go wrong. Uh, well, if you're it's offering really to wrong. cook for me, I won't say no. I, I may have to bring some authentic Italian tiramisu and, and try to convert you. Okay. Okay. I'll be willing to try it if you cook for me. All right. I love it. You're open to it. That's great. See, we're already starting <laughs> at a point of agreement. I love there it. There you go. Um, all right. Down to business. We, I have to have moments of lev- levity because there's so much crazy shit going on in the world that if we don't have some moments of levity, we'll, we'll never make it. Uh, but we'll get to the serious stuff now. Um, Trump is overseas. He's on the move every time the president he is, is right. racking up frequent flyer miles. And I think everyone abroad is wishing he'd stay home. I'm telling you. Well, sometimes I think we wish he would just go away and stay there and not be our problem anymore, but he's still the or president. Just lose his phone. I know, you, you know, just, just lose his phone. Somebody imagine what a different presidency it would be if he did not have the, the, the Twitter addiction. I, I just think it would be a complete different, um, a complete different animal. And but he has it. Well, and markets would be doing a little bit better. That's for sure. No kidding. Um, So he's over there in Britain and um, he had a press conference with Theresa May. He still has a couple days to go. By the time this airs, he will have uh, accomplished a few days. So God knows what he leaves in his wake. But what have you seen so far? Uh, What are your thoughts on his his trip over in the UK?
1: Well, I don't even know where to start counting his trip because on Air Force One, even before he landed, he did such irreparable damage to one, the notion that he actually preps for these trips, and two, to interfering in British politics from 50,000 feet. I mean, he was on Air Force One. and spent a lot of time on that plane. It's great. But typically, presidents use their time before they land on foreign soil to, you know, get ready for the meetings they're going to have. President Trump was tweeting about Meghan Markle, tweeting about Sadiq Khan, calling him a stone cold loser, doing everything possible to make him an unwelcome visitor in the United Kingdom and clearly not actually focusing on the substance of what he should have been accomplishing on the ground in the UK from a policy standpoint and we can talk about that um, not to mention the fact that when he landed he was tweeting about the CNN coverage right. and the fact that it was the only uh, network available there glad to hear he's watching CNN <laughs> yeah, yeah but exactly. it's like he he's trying to showcase how little work that he does when this is our closest ally and I've been to the UK I went with President Obama and there's literally an endless list of issues that you want to talk about and that's when the world has been falling apart um, for this trip the stakes arguably couldn't be higher based upon the fact that we have a brexit impasse um, we're going to have a new british prime minister very soon we have an intelligence crisis uh ahead of us uh, not only because of the u.s decision on huawei and potentially to cut off uh intelligence partners which he actually addressed in his press conference then you get iran north korea syria i mean. It, russia the one word he you know didn't want to say when he was on the ground so you know he he was really broadcasting that trump is going to be trump all the time and do no work even before he landed um and then while he was on the ground i mean to an extent the public facing in-person trump was relatively well behaved but again that's relative the bar is so very low and Indeed. he just wrapped up a he just wrapped up a press conference that again from Trump's standards, wasn't awful, but, you know, he spewed misinformation. He basically asked Theresa May for a metaphorical high five on his approval rating in, in the Republican car- Party, which was kind of one of those, huh, moments. Right. Um, And then, you know, he interfered. Again, you know, he was asked a question on Brexit. He's offered his views on it from the get go, despite the fact that this involves two of our closest allies, Britain and the EU. And he's kind of in this I told you so posture. Don Trump has gone. Trump Jr. has jumped on that train, too. And he, you know, made a mess of things that he should have not meddled in in the first place. So did the trip go awfully? No. But again, the bar is so very low. And I just really doubt that any progress was made on any of the substantive issues.
0: There were a couple of things that um, stood out to me in that press conference also uh, when he made the comment about that. Theresa May was probably a better negotiator than he was. He was trying to be funny. And it was actually a moment of self-deprecation that we don't often often see even though he'd been so critical of her in the past and he said, Oh well I would have sued the EU over the Brexit yeah. stuff." He's nicer to like, her
1: today on her way out the door right. than he been, you know, at any point during her um, during her tenure. But like I mean everybody knows that A, he's a horrible negotiator. Of I mean the man who's supposed to deal maker in chief, like name a trade deal that he's actually been able to clinch. The Iran deal he backed out of and now is arguably trying to get basically the Iran deal again because we're on the brink of a direct confrontation and Iran has restarted activities that were banned under the Iran deal. Like he has nothing to show for his negotiating skills and frankly – Neither does Theresa May. Britain is in an existential political crisis, mm-hmm. and he's you know fake lauding her credentials as a negotiator. She has failed as a negotiator, unfortunately, um, and Britain is, again, facing this existential crisis. So I don't know if he was trying to be funny.
0: I don't know what he really meant by that. Right. But- Neither of them can really stand on their
1: laurels as negotiators at this point.
0: No, absolutely not. And of course, he couldn't resist trying to claim it was fake news that the protests are happening against him there when his approval rating is like 21 percent in Britain. And there are major protests all throughout London. Yeah. And by the way, he took a helicopter yesterday. He didn't take a motorcade. Like, I'm
1: really curious if we need to start calling him like Equalized Trump or something. Like, how did he... (laughs) How did he see the supposed, quote-unquote, tremendous crowds of well-wishers from a helicopter? I mean, we all know that there were mass protests. That's likely why he took a helicopter ride, unlike Obama, who took a motorcade. Um, and his, as you mentioned, his approval rating is incredibly low. He also said that the protests were were um, you know put there for political purposes. No, that's what we call democracy. Exactly. <laughs> that's people expressing their views um, and their, the views in the UK of President Trump, except for perhaps Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, and other members of the far right – are incredibly low. And by the way, he's going to France. I think he has a 9% approval rating in France. Yes. And he has expressed his political views on the UK. You know, he and Emmanuel Macron have had a bromance. Marine Le Pen just beat Emmanuel Macron. Um, Marine Le Pen, the far right candidate in EU parliamentary elections, I'm like cringing, just waiting for him to like congratulate her or something while he's with Emmanuel Macron because Marine Le Pen is more aligned with his views
0: politically. Right. And so she, I don't think the political she's controversial. Is done. I don't think people realize the you know a lot of most the average American doesn't know about European politics or the ins and outs of that. Um, can you just briefly explain why Marine Le Pen is problematic?
1: Yes, uh, but maybe where I'll start is just with where we are with far-right parties in Europe in general. I mean, we have seen nationalism surging around the world. Um, Arguably, you know, President Trump represents that in the United States, and nationalism is really spanning from, you know, our far right parties are really spanning from Brazil and Mexico all the way to the Philippines. And Europe has seen um, a rise in the extremes. So the far right and the far left really gained more seats in the EU parliamentary elections that ended last weekend. And so the centrist parties lost some ground. And that's at the EU level. So now what we have is more, again, people on either sides of the extreme having more power with at the EU level. Uh, they don't have a majority, uh, but they do have more power than any other time in the EU's history. At the national level, we have seen nationalist leaders really gain traction in several countries um, in Europe. So in the UK, you have Nigel Farage. His party just won at the EU level. You could have a nationalist leader emerge as the next prime minister. That is definitely a possibility. Mm -hmm. You look at Italy, where there is an extremely far-right governing coalition. Um, the five-star alliance. And then you have Hungary, you have Poland, you have far-right parties surging in countries like the Netherlands and Germany um, and elsewhere. And in France, Marine Le Pen, nationalist candidate, I I would call her racist, but staunchly Mm -hmm. anti-immigrant and incredibly bigoted in her language. And what they all share, and Trump shares this with them, um, is a notion that protectionism is a way to go, immigrants are bad, we should build walls, um, and we should keep all those other people out. They use, uh, Many of them use incredibly, incredibly racist language against Muslims. And there's this growing idea Steve Bannon by the way has been bopping around Europe trying to, you know, spread his narrative on the I this. saw that. He just oh, got creating, evicted, right? He was in Italy. He was he got, in some monster. I yeah, know. Yeah, he couldn't I was like,
0: guy. what is going on? He couldn't he couldn't show his face in the US anymore, so he went over to Italy to try to capture yeah, the And Right. It's like the Europeans know how to do nationalism, unfortunately, as um, we've learned. Right. Um the
1: far right in Europe has unfortunately done very well with Horrible consequences, mm-hmm. but you know you 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 have this nationalist fervor gripping the continent, and Trump likes these guys. I mean he he um, likes hanging out with the president of Poland and Viktor Orban. He praised the prime minister of Italy, Conti. These are these are the people that he is ideolo- ideologically aligned with, and if these parties gain traction at the EU level, that could mean a lot for the EU. They they are not convinced uh, that the experiment of the European Union is one worth sticking to. They want more decentralization from that model. They want to put up walls. They want to kick out immigrants. And there's this horrific narrative, and this isn't all of them, but it's it's not an in- insignificant number of this kind of Steve Bannon's lang- language, like a Judeo-Christian alliance that looks very white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and That is deeply, deeply troublesome. Um, And we have seen that a lot of this content has been manipulated by people that do very dangerous things. And instead of um, instead of taking a step back as the United States and thinking about what this looks like from a security perspective, Trump is embracing. And the last thing I'll say, Tara, is. The Directorate of National Intelligence in their worldwide threat briefing thought that the rise of ethno-nationalism was so severe a risk to U.S. national security that they included it in their worldwide threat briefing.
0: And so under well, Trump, uh, this current DNI, Dan Coates, yeah, or in the past? In, 2019,
1: mm-hmm. in this one, the 2019 worldwide threat briefing talks about the rise of ethno-supremacy and kind of extreme nationalism. Um, I can tweet out the link later, but they – the, the intelligence community views this as a risk. We've seen this this content being manipulated by very dangerous people, um, but Trump doesn't realize that here at home. He doesn't denounce nationalism and uh, dangerous nationalism,
0: and we're not seeing that kind of denunciation overseas either. And he's also refuses to acknowledge that Russia has their dirty hands in pushing a lot of this in all of these places across the globe. That's exactly right. Russia, a lot of these leaders have have, have ties to Russia. That's right. That's Um, right. It's, it's it's a really tangled web, and it's ugly. And unfortunately, the president of the United States is um, an unindicted co-conspirator, if I may say, in in a lot of these things by and enabling Russia to keep doing what they're doing, which leads me into the question. Um, just to explain for, for you to explain briefly to people the importance of the Five Eyes intelligence relationship that Trump's comments accusing Britain of spying on his campaign, which is you know all. all about the Mueller investigation, but he's making these comments where we, we have this special relationship with the United Kingdom. They are our closest allies in the world, and explain to people why Trump's comments about the uh, in the accusations of spying and how that and what the Five Eyes intelligence alliance is and why it's so important. Sure. So the five eyes are the five countries that have the closest
1: intelligence sharing partnerships in the world. So typically, intelligence, when it's collected by one country, is for that country's purposes. And to be able to share it with another country, there's a, there's a very specific process that the intelligence community goes through to make sure that it can be shared, that it will be treated responsibly, and that it serves the U.S. national security interest to share it with that intelligence partner. And obviously with different countries, we have different levels of sharing, to put it in, in basic terms. With the Five Eyes, we have the most extensive, deepest, and broadest set of intelligence sharing. We, we don't see everything that each other but we see a lot. And that's critically important because the United States can't have the best intelligence everywhere at every time. By working with our partners, we fill in the gaps. We, we not only warn each other of, of threats that we pick, pick up on, but one of our intelligence partners, let's say Israel, which is not a member of the Five Eyes, might have better access in Iran, might have better access in Russia. That's actually where the U.S.-Israel uh, intelligence sharing relationship started. Um, they had great collection on the mm-hmm. Soviet Union, which we did not at the time in the fifties so if we lose access to intelligence for any number of reasons, whether that's because we cut them off because they use Huawei or because our intel partners are really worried about sharing stuff that's going to end up on President Trump's desk when he's so careless with um, declassifying information. That's his, it's his authority to do so, but he's so careless with that because you have Jared Kushner walking around the White House when he should not have a security clearance.
0: We're going to talk about um, that next. <laughs> yeah. or because I know you have strong feelings about that as well. Yeah, to- Yeah, or because
1: President Trump has given Attorney General Barr the authority to declassify anything that he wants as part of his investigation into um, the Mueller investigation, and that's deeply worrisome. And so we could see – I think it's, it's logical that our intel partners would take a step back. And finally, Tara, Trump continues to undercut the intelligence community. So he he stands up there and degrades the work of our intelligence professionals, says that they're naive, Says he doesn't believe them, sides with Putin. I mean, last night he tweeted, Russia told me they removed all their right. people from Venezuela. I was like, A, what? when is Russia not lying? And B, when did Putin become the director of national
0: intelligence, right? was <laughs> right. attacking our country. I'll tell you when. So, he became the director yeah. of national intelligence the, the day Donald Trump got elected, November 2016. <laughs> or
1: or during the Trump campaign, God. perhaps. But, yeah. uh,
0: <laughs> But uh but so for all those reasons
1: you kinda of just have to wonder, you know, at what point our intelligence partners start stop taking a step back. Not because they don't want to keep Americans safe, but because if they continue to share stuff with us, their sources and methods may be at risk. And what that means is if their ability to collect intelligence without their sources and methods being exposed exposed is at risk, that A, puts their own people in danger mm-hmm. um, if they're exposed, and B, is going to make people less willing to work with their governments. I mean if you're exposed as a source, if your whole life is blown up – that's going to disincentivize anyone else from following your lead because they're not going to want to be exposed right. in that of way course. in a lot of these countries there is a lot of risk to working Absolutely. with foreign governments and part um, of their, and, that
0: and part of the reason that they would work with us is because you used to believe that you could trust the united states um josh campbell uh, our colleague at cnn former fbi special agent he has a book coming out that i had the opportunity to get an advanced copy of and he talks about a, he, he talks he gives an anecdote in his book about, um, meeting a source overseas and what they said to them about being able to trust the United States and how the comp, the current environment we're in puts that trust at risk. Mm-hmm. It was a very fascinating mm-hmm. anecdote. So it's all along the lines of, of what you're, you're talking about. Um, I know that we're pressed for time, so I just wanted to, to, to transition over because, uh, you're, you you have a hard out. Um, just, for the Five Eyes, to, to button up the Five Eyes conversation, w- what are the five countries? It's Britain, Australia, the US, New Zealand, and who else? Canada. Canada. There you go. The good yeah. old Canadians, of course. It, I love Canada. <laughs> I've only been to Canada once my whole life. I need to, it that needs to awesome. change. I know. I need to go. And I'm, I don't know. We might move there if, if Trump gets reelected. We're yeah, I'll come. I'll come. and finally like Gilead, right? Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> right? The comes out. comes out tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Right. I'm so excited. By the way, we're talking about The Handmaid's Tale. I can't wait for the new season to come out. It comes out this week. Me uh, neither. I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, you uh, b- Before I go on to Jared Kushner, um, you said that you'd flown many times on Air Force One, and I would assume that you've briefed President Obama in the past being a National Security uh, Council staffer. Can you just tell a little bit about what that experience was like, or if you have a a, a neat anecdote to tell people that something that sticks out from your time with with President Obama? Because I'm sure the contrast is stark. Well, the thing with President Obama is he was always two steps ahead.
1: So no matter how good your briefing was, how buttoned up you were, he always had incredibly, incredibly analytic questions. So a briefing for Obama was an opportunity to share policy recommendations to update him on an issue. But he wasn't just well prepared; it was his intellectual rigor in questioning where we were going with things, and so that's why now, you know, when President Trump questions the intelligence community or his team, that's that's not a bad thing. That's the job of the president, and we all uh, did our job better because Obama did that. The difference is that President Trump isn't basing those questions on anything. I mean, President Obama was an extensive reader, um, and President Obama. Felt that hearing divergent views was a good thing. I don't think he would have liked a meeting if everyone just said, sir, yes. Trump Mm -hmm. calls for. The whole purpose of the National Security Council is to have cabinet officials that represent different equities. That's a good thing. The point of being president is to represent all Americans and to hear, you know, what Republicans think. And on an issue, on any issue, he always wanted to hear the full range of ideas. Uh, Air Force One, I mean, President Obama, the funny thing about Air Force One is, you know, just when you think that it's time to go to sleep and, you know, sit back and maybe put on your PJs or something, you know, President Obama. Obama would, you know, stroll back and ask a question and, you know, you'd be sitting there in your like blue lemon spandex or something and think, <laughs> oh, my God, that's a president of the United States.
0: Well, but what, <laughs> would he mom, have on, what, what would he have on, though? <laughs> what would he have
1: on? You look at casual on the plane. I mean, those flights to Asia are brutal. Right. They're like brutal. They're and like 18 hour the- flights. They're 18-hour flights, and, you know, he took time to prep with us. He also took time to kind of turn his brain off a little bit and play cards. He played this game Spades.
0: Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we like, wait, so preparing wait. for a foreign... President yes, Obama would for... play Spades on Air Force One w- with staff? I think that was the game. I think that was the game, it's yeah. It's a partner like, game. Like... We take four people, so he'd have to have a partner. I think that's what it was. I never learned how to play. Oh my god, uh, that's uh, I have to find out if if, if uh, Obama was really yeah. playing spades on Air Force One. That would be great. And who is spades' partner? But that was like that was <laughs> like awesome.
1: his off time, you know. I yeah. mean, the rest of the time he had briefings on the plane. To. One, get updated on everything happening while he was in the air, because obviously national security doesn't stop when the president is on a plane. But B, just to go over everything again. Um, Mm -hmm. And what he didn't do was tweet insults um, and harass people from 50,000 he, he did not think that that was a good use of taxpayer
0: dollars. Yeah, um, that, what do you know? Differentiates him a president acting yeah. presidential, even when he was down, dressed down playing spades on Air Force One. <laughs> yeah, he's anathema at this point, doesn't it? Oh my gosh! Uh, you know, I I said on CNN the other night um, that I actually would would take Obama back in office, even though I vehemently disagreed with him on a lot of policy mm-hmm. issues, almost everything, and I was very opposed to his his uh candidacy and his presidency and a lot of reasons for a lot of things but he was a good and decent man at least and I would take that back and wage the political fights traditionally like we did the Democrat Republican political fights than what we have now because it's it's just such a it's in such disarray that none of what Trump has done even the good things are worth it in my opinion as a conservative it's just not and so yeah there's a process like this isn't even a process this yeah. you know, just getting in a bad mood. There was a process for what we did, of and course. it course, agreed with it, it There's was no integrated right. Yeah. You you mean this is the government. It's not a reality show. There's like processes and democratic norms and institutions need to be maintained for a reason. That's why our democracies are well, our constitutional republic has been successful for over 200 years. Um, Well, speaking of that, uh, in our last couple of minutes, I wanted to talk a little bit about Jared Kushner and this interview on Axios, which which was just a disaster. I I don't even know why he agreed to do it or who allowed him to do it. Where he, two things uh, that stood out to me. Um, he was asked if the Russians approached him again about a meeting or approached him about helping them with the election, would he go to the FBI? And he said, well, I don't think so. I don't, I don't deal in hypotheticals. Like, he didn't say no. He didn't say, yes, I would contact the FBI. I was like, oh, my God. What you, why is this not a categorical Yes. And then he also, you know, so that transitions also into how does that, you have a security clearance. My husband's a federal officer. He has a security clearance. Like there are certain responsibilities when you have a security clearance, you know, you have a security clearance. Can you please tell me what your reaction was to that Kushner interview and what your thoughts are about him having a security clearance and just how problematic Jared Kushner is in general being in the White House?
1: Well, Jared Kushner, I said this on air yesterday, that in in that interview, he like put a giant for sale sign on his forehead, right? Right. He broadcasts the entire world, Russia and any other foreign actor that they can get in touch with him. uh, And he's not going to tell the FBI. That's obviously hugely dangerous from a counterintelligence perspective, from a 2020 perspective, but it's par for the course. That's what Rudy Giuliani said. Trump has said the same thing. So he's just signaling that he's open for business as long as he's getting information that's helpful to him or to his family or to Trump's reelection campaign. From a security clearance perspective, you have to report foreign contact that's outside of your your regular work conduct to the FBI. That's a requirement of having a top secret security clearance. Jared Kushner could not pass the most basic counterintelligence polygraph, like literally a baby one, if one was ever administered to him. The reason that Jared Kushner has a clearance is because his father-in-law wanted him to. And that interview, you know, we talked about intelligence before. If I'm a foreign intelligence service and I'm reading that, I'm super worried about the fact uh, that Jared Kushner is reading anything. That may end up on his desk, and in his role as kind of advisor of everything,
0: he can read whatever he wants. That and he, and he, does. And he does, and he does. He re, and, he's been you know, reading we, the presidential daily briefing, which is one of the most highly classified documents that the president is, gets, as is. you know. And I did I talked extensively about this back during the Jamal Khashoggi incident and questioning um, Kushner's relationship with the Saudis and, and and MBS, and that was all very suspicious to me. And, and this, so Jared Kushner has access. He's reading the presidential daily briefings. I don't think Trump is, and what he's doing. Right. With and, that and and experts did not think that he was responsible Correct. enough to have a
1: clearance. I mean, Trump or Trump or somebody, Trump, the experts, and awarded him a clearance. That's the president's legal right to do so. But we have a man that could be an unknowing or unwitting asset, or a no, I, I don't think he's a knowing or witting one, but a man that is so obviously manipulated by foreign governments roaming the halls of the White House, Um, not to mention the fact that any policy initiative that he's worked on has been an utter disaster. He cannot be trusted with classified information. And by the way, the people that we work with most closely on Russia are the Five Eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Like the U.K. and and our our, um, intelligence partners in Europe, we're working with them to counter Russia's attack on our country at the kind of sub-Kushner and sub-Trump level. They listen to that. And they're kind of like, why am I sending this stuff over if this guy's saying that he might, might be working with the other side? That would raise a lot of red flags for intelligence partners, too. And at this point, you know, we have to accept the fact that Jared Kushner may be a giant sieve for intelligence information. Mm-hmm. He either doesn't know how to handle it um, or, or doesn't know how to handle um, counterintelligence issues or just doesn't care. I'm kind of in the doesn't care aspect of this. Uh, Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, testified publicly about what was going on. He said publicly called the FBI. That's Derek right. Kushner is not wearing blindfolds and earmuffs. We've seen him in person now, <laughs> right? <laughs> like he's an American like the rest of us. He heard Bob Mueller say that every American should be concerned about Russia's ongoing attack on our country. And he's, he's just t- tuning it out. Um, and he had an opportunity in that interview to very clearly say that he doesn't want to look backward. Let's look forward and let's keep our country safe. And, you know, he chose to obfuscate and to really signal to every malign actor around the world that he's open for business.
0: So I would assume that you are team volume one of the Mueller report over team volume two. Oh, I am. Yes. I am. Volume one all the way. Yeah, and that's the volume where uh, Mueller talks about the Russian co- collusion part of it. And although there was no criminal conspiracy established, there was a lot of colludy shit going on in volume one that every American Americans should be concerned about. None of it was okay. And Mueller, his parting shot was to remind people that Russia attacked our elections. Um, and the fact that we have a, a presidency where they just seem to gloss not only gloss over it, but they are encouraging it, as you said, They're embracing it's, just, it. it's, it's mind-blowing the Mueller, Volume one should
1: be a playbook for every American of what not to do mm-hmm. in the election cycle. That's it should right. be a playbook, especially for anybody in the U.S. government and anybody that's part of a campaign, whether that be the I don't, scores of Democratic candidates or, or Donald Trump. You know, most people learn from, him, learn from their past mistakes. The Trump team knowingly repeats them um, that the Mueller report told, should tell everyone what not to do. And Jared Kushner just said, yeah, maybe I'd do it again. Um, and, you know, claiming that this is a hypothetical, it's not a hypothetical. Right. We it all happened. know that Jared Kushner WhatsApp, mm-hmm. you know, with foreign leaders all the time. Um, so it's not a hypothetical. And we're not Monday morning quarterbacking. We are living
0: this right now. And he's basically saying, I'm still long for Putin's ride. It, which is just so unacceptable uh, in, on so many levels. Um, well, and to, voters should think about that, right? Like, yes. is, this, is this who you want mm-hmm. supposedly protecting your country? That's, and that's That's you you know, right.
1: Along with, you know, the the fact that Donald Trump has the endorsement of dictators. Like, do you want someone who's willing to work with the other, like not willing to report or Biggest enemy to the FBI, supposedly protecting your security. That's an issue for voters to decide, and I say that as a security professional, not based upon my political views.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in our in our final minutes, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about something that I know is important to you and your family, and it and it ties into the the Trump's trip overseas and the 75th anniversary of D-Day coming up this week. Um, you are the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and I just think it's so important for people to, A, not forget history, and B, give people who have such um, uh, intimate involvement relationships and connections to such a, an unbelievable time in history to talk about that to other people. So um, as we approach the 75th anniversary of, of D-Day, just want to talk a little bit about um, what that means to your family and, and to your dad, and, um, uh, and we, we can end on that.
1: Well, thanks for mentioning that because it's been something that um, has been uh, an increasingly prevalent topic of conversation around my dinner table because so much of what my father says was around him. In the run-up to the Holocaust, we're hearing, seeing similar tropes, we're hearing similar rhetoric, and we're seeing countries implement policies that are really anachronistic with the pledge that so many governments made to never again let this kind of thing happen. Um, and uh, right now, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, the, the rise of the far right uh, in Europe is um, in, in some ways very reminiscent of language and rhetoric and policies that we heard, uh, in the run up to world war two. And, and there are certain actions happening here at home that are not dissimilar from what we heard in the, in the 1930s. I mean, describing the press as the enemy of the people trying mm-hmm. to shape narratives, about, quote-unquote, the other, whether that be Jews or Mexicans or migrants, is, is, is again antithetical to the pledge that we made to kind of never again let this kind of hate perpetrate. And you know, the, one of the biggest lessons that my father taught me is that it's, it, it's not just about the Jews. It was the Jews during the Holocaust as well as other minorities – When someone starts hating a group of people, that can metastasize. Mm -hmm. And so when we hear people pillory Muslims or call Mexicans rapists and criminals or target African-Americans, that can spread. And the the issue right now is that we have someone in the Oval Office that knowingly spreads those kinds of stereotypes of vitriol and doesn't denounce these kinds of actions. Um, That should be a knee-jerk reaction for everybody. Um, kind of on a human level, but also on a security level. Um, And instead, what we're seeing is kind of return to that us versus them rhetoric and that's deeply worrying um and at the same time we have you know jared kushner going on axios on hbo and talking about how his parents were holocaust survivors and how this president you know is doing things that he's proud of Ooh. and this president is closing our borders this country closed its borders to the ms st louis and ships and that's drove right droves the jews fleeing the holocaust yep um, in the in the 1930s and 1940s, and what are we doing now? Our refugee ceiling, at a time when there are global crises around the world, is the lowest it's been since 1980. <laughs> the the scale of the crises haven't hasn't decreased, but our ceiling is at so much lower. And I think for Holocaust survivors, and there aren't that many of them left, they never thought that they would hear this kind of language again and see these kinds of policies. And what, you know, what my dad tells me is that, you know, we each we each have a voice and um, there's this great poem I've posted before that um, you know, talks about first they came for the Jews and I said nothing because I wasn't a Jew. And, you know, first... People talk, talk out, speak out against someone that's not you and you don't say anything because you think it doesn't affect you. And then, as I said, it metastasizes. So the only thing, the thing I'll end on, Tara, is that we all just have to continue to speak up. As much as we think it might not be having an impact, we have to do it. Being silent right now should should not be an option for anybody. Um, And we all have more platforms to do so. You know, technology can be a platform for spreading tolerance and spreading understanding as much as it's become a platform for spreading hate. And that's where I just hope that young people, people, you know, people all over the country just start being more independently active rather than just sitting back and saying, oh, there he goes again. There's Trump or Stephen Miller or, you know, someone else saying something that's untrue or racist or bigoted. Like, no, like we all need to speak up and not just those of us that are on television or or something like that you know we we every every american has a voice and i just hope that every american feels comfortable using it
0: amen to that sam and yeah. um, god bless you and your and your family and your dad i had the opportunity to go to israel a few months ago and go to the holocaust museum there and i have to tell you it was one of the most sobering experiences i've yeah. ever had and um my own great grandparents left germany um, to To avoid what was going on there, because my wow. my great uncle was being recruited by the SS, and um, oh they, they, they came. Yeah, they came over here, um, and I didn't know that until um, very later in life. And so, going there and and seeing um, just the. Uh, the horrors of the Holocaust in right there in front of you. It's just different than a history book and and even for people like your family where they actually lived through it. I, I have so much respect for um, for those experiences and I just think that every American needs to go back and read their history books and pay attention as my grandfather used to say. We've got to pay attention and as you said, speak up. We all have a voice. Yep. Sam Vinograd, yep. thank you so much. You Thanks, can find Tara. her on Twitter at Sam underscore Vinograd. She also has as a weekly, uh, the, the presidential weekly briefing every weekend on CNN. So check her out. Safe travel, Sam. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tara. I look forward to the too. <laughs> Indeed. I promise. I'll, I'll hold you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Again, a big thank you to my guest this week, Sam Vinograd. Be sure to follow her on Twitter at Sam underscore Vinograd. Check out out her weekly columns on CNN.com and her weekly presidential briefing segments uh, on the weekends on CNN. And that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Be sure to follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer or at underscore, I'm sorry, honestly honestly underscore Tara on, uh, on Twitter. And on Instagram at the Mayor. Uh, tweet at me, let me know what guests, what questions, things like that. I'm pretty interactive. And I will, uh, I, I have to find those, those newspapers from World War II that I talked about that my grandfather had. They're somewhere around here. I'm going to post them on there too. All right, stay tuned. I'll see you next week.